Hi, everybody. Welcome to the 7 and 7 show with Zach Ellison. I'm here today with Safan Whitwell, founder and CEO of Whitwell and Company, uh, based in Austin, Texas. And Stefan has a ton of experience on Wall Street, worked at Goldman Sachs, Credit Suisse, the CFA charter holder, uh, has worked on the trading floor, he's worked in M&A, and a very, very smart investor. And so I'm really happy to have you on today, Stefan. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got here, and what you're working on now. Well, I think my most important job is dad. Uh, I've got four kids and uh, just, I mean, uh, love being dad, but I also love you know, the world of finance, uh, running well, a company, we're 14 states and, um, all of our clients are just really different and accomplished and, um, it, it's fun to learn from them. Um, it, I think it's also been especially fun the last three years when the world has kind of gone crazy and we've had a very new set of problems to, uh, to look at, uh, and figure out how to apply kind of age old, uh, principles to. Um, I'd say two things I'm working on right now. Uh, one, uh, and we can talk about it more later, but uh, I don't think the banking crisis is over yet. Uh, I think it's going to create some uh, challenges in the system that I'm interested in finding the right ways to take advantage of. Uh, and the second thing that I've been spending a lot of time on is thinking about functional automation, uh, marrying the superpowers of humans and computers and understanding kind of where one starts and the other stops. Um, and even the use of advanced automation, ironically, requires, in my experience, a tremendous amount of humanity, which is kind of ironic. And uh, the, I think the effective use of AI does too. Um, and so I've just been been working on some projects related to that. And, um, you know, it's been fun. Yeah, AI is certainly changing the nature of, of everything very quickly. And I'm thinking a lot about how it's changing the investment industry in particular. And within the RIA space, how do you think it's going to evolve and what's it going to mean for advisors and how they interact with clients? Yeah, you know, so, uh, so I, I've, I mean, I'm sure you do too, right? Every day I get tons of junk mail, people trying to sell me a new app, a new tool. Uh, and there's a lot of people that uh, are trying to automate so I think there's the investing side and the financial planning side. They're, they're trying to automate both. Um, I, I think it's really hard to automate the financial planning side. And of course, um, you know, there've been been some, a bit a lot of people who tried, there've been some who've very been very successful in the kind of automated trading space. Uh, but that's really, really hard. Um, and, you know, so for at least for us, I think that the where we see the most opportunity is looking at your workflow and 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 going, what can a computer do better than I can? And also adding some discipline. Uh, so for example, you know, thinking in a more disciplined way about data, um, making sure that you only enter data once, that you don't have multiple du duplicative databases, um, thinking about things like um, you know, being able to automate intelligent kind of double checking of data or your systems and process, I think can be really valuable. Same way on the investment side, uh, you know, it, it, short of having the resources of Renaissance, um, I think there's some things you can do to automate um, kind of that first preliminary kind of data sifting that, that we need to all constantly be doing. And 
there's so much data out there that it, it's just impossible to try to keep up with it all uh, as a human being in a manual sense. So I think the, there's a real race to come up with the most intelligent um, tools to isolate the factors or the developments or the changes in the market or data that are of, of greatest interest to you. And then I think intelligent systems, instead of forcing you to then go to that database and say, okay, what you got, uh, the best ones are now proactively reaching out to you and saying, hey, knock, knock, guess what? Uh, some interesting data is now that meets these criteria that you selected is now you know, uh, happening, take a look. And, and so I think ideally, you know, one of the most low hanging fruit use cases is just that helping us kind of get through the mass of data, isolating into the pieces that we needed then as humans be exercising our judgment and insight on, um, to then make, make the tough calls on the investment side. Yeah, I agree. And I think about it a lot. And one of the things I, I think about is comparative advantage and if you if you go back to econ 101 when you were at wharton and and i was at you know swarthmore they teach you about comparative advantage and the reality is that ai and and computers and are going to do things that we can't do and they're going to do things better in some cases but there's a lot of things that we will do better as humans and yeah i'm thinking it's going to evolve into almost like a a, a very powerful tool that will enable us to take the low touch repetitive activities off our plates and give us more time to spend with our clients and deepening the relationships with them and spend more time thinking about big picture uh, strategic issues and less time on you know the day-to-day uh, you know, small issues that need to get done but that quite frankly can be you know automated to a large extent so i'm, I'm thinking hard about okay what what does you know, AI do better and what can we use it for? And then take a lot of our work that we're spending time on and push that to AI and then take that free time and use it for higher value activities. And when I think about wealth management, the highest value activity, in my opinion, is really that relationship with a client, right? Um, and, and you know this well, I, I think you can not necessarily have the best financial performance and if you've got a great relationship with your clients and they trust you and they know that you're always working hard for them and that that you're doing the right thing they'll they'll kind of give you a pass at times if your performance lags a little bit for periods um, but if you don't have that relationship i don't think they're gonna give you that pass and so i, I think that'll you know be a very powerful tool for folks that that utilize it wisely right because it'll enable you to develop the relationship well, I think you nailed it. At, you know, there's this perception that, um, you know, it 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 harms the workforce. I think it's going to change the workforce uh, in a few years fairly dramatically. But I think it will, to your point, create a better pathway. So, for example, on our ops team, I would much rather have somebody on our ops team not having to manually enter data multiple times, but have a computer do that, which could do it much more perfectly consistently, but uh, free them up to do some things that they can still do better than a computer today. Uh, an example of that would be listening. Another example would be empathy. You know, there's still a, an intimacy to the act of listening between two human beings, right? It's one reason we very rarely ever hear, uh, and I'm going to generalize, but women 
complain about how great their husbands listen, right? I mean, you, you know, he listens too much. You never hear that. He listens too well. Never hear that. Um, and in a client relationship, that's that's just crucial. And 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 sometimes there's just that that being present with that person and listening that that creates that intimacy that that a computer can't do yet, right? And um, so I, I I do think it's going to enhance the quality of the time that we spend doing what we do. Um, but I do think it's going to be very disruptive. Um, I think it's going to um, end up creating a lot of job shifts that that I think we in corporate America need to proactively try to figure out how can we help people adjust. So if we see people on our team whose jobs are, uh, you can imagine, very replaceable by technology pretty soon, I think it's our... It's our responsibility to, to kind of think two or three steps ahead and go, hey, what is that person's superpower? How can I deploy them if we head technology today, which we will tomorrow, to do 80% of what they're doing today? Um, and, and even from a client standpoint, I'll give you another example. We, we have a very automated onboarding process, um, and, and it all starts with a very interactive type form that where the questions are highly personal and a dynamic to how you last answered it. And um, it's funny seeing the times of day or night that clients end up choosing to fill that out. And, and there's great freedom for clients in being able to do that on their time frame rather than having to do it at a scheduled meeting, you know, sometime between nine and five, because I don't know, like most of us, you know, we're just pulled in a thousand different directions and our schedules can be very different. And um, so from a client experience too, I think it gives them the freedom to 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 engage with us in sometimes more convenient um, ways as well. So I, I'm, I'm much more excited. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of promise there, but uh, I do acknowledge there's going to be some change. And I think we need to try to get ahead of that in, in a conscious way and, and help in our companies create the smoothest um, transition for people as possible. I've been reading some research recently coming out of some of the bigger consulting shops, and they basically say it's going to hurt white collar workers the most and senior white collar workers, uh, meaning AI is going to replace or take some of the jobs away from those folks. I actually disagree because I think where it's going to really have the biggest impact is the mid-level or white collar professions, but mid and lower level uh, folks, because ultimately using you know chat gpt and similar ai today um generative uh, what uh, generative ai it, it's yeah. basically it, it's basically able to do the work of i would say like a first year analyst you know and and just like a first year analyst work needs to be checked thoroughly by more senior people uh, so does you know chat gpt's outputs but it's so much faster than a first-year analyst and has a you know, much you know, greater scope where it can suck data in instantaneously. And so what I think will wind up happening is teams will get a lot leaner in the middle and lower ranks. And I still think there's going to be the need for senior people that are making the big picture you know, strategic decisions. I don't think you're going to outsource your CEO's job to AI, but I do think you're going to outsource your you know, mid-level manager's job to AI. And anybody who's doing functions that are repetitive and quite frankly, like don't really change day to day, that's all going to be automated. 
anything that that changes is going to be difficult to automate but if it's the same process like in trading for instance there's processes that are the same every single day why is a human doing that that should be automated and so i think that's what will happen in my view do you how, how do you think about uh, about how it'll affect the workforce no i, I think that's right i think what's going to happen is um <clears throat> Like right now, there's this explosion of curiosity, uh, you know, around um, the the different AI programs that have gone public, and and actually, if you look at their their um, the speed with which they've gotten their first million users, it's faster than any other app in history by a long shot. Um, it, it took it like six days to get its first million, you know, users or something crazy. Um, but I, you know, there's resistance to change is slow until you realize you have to, and then it can be very quick. So I'll give you an example. I, you know, I have a friend who uh, was told for many years, oh, you need to eat better. You got to watch your cholesterol. Didn't change. Or if he did, it was very minute. Then he had a heart attack. And then overnight, he became vegan, super clean eater, right? Because he had to. Uh, I think what's going to happen is there's, there's, you know, we're going to see a lot of larger corporations kind of be slow to really fully harness the power of automation but then then they're going to get hit with the, with with you know uh, by competitive pressures of firms that are able to just run circles around them at a fraction of the cost and they're going to be forced to do that and and so what i fear is that there's going to be a, you know a point where there'll be an accelerated amount of change if we're not proactive ahead of time. And I'll, I'll give you an example in the financial industry. Uh, where is the innovation taking place? It's not happening at the large banks, at the large brokerage firms, in part because they're saddled with decades of legacy IT systems that are just a mess. And they're also not known to be kind of, you know, great centers of innovation to begin with. It's the smaller firms that are saying, hey, I don't have the resources to hire 10 people. How can I get this done? I want to compete with that firm that's 10 times bigger than me. What tools do you have that can help us, right? So what's that quote? Invention is born out of, is the, or, uh, uh, um, uh, in, uh, in necessity is the mother of invention. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So I, I think that um, it's going to creep up on medium and larger size firms faster than they expect, um, but not immediately. Uh, you know, larger, it's just, People are, you know, there's a lot of resistance to kind of wholesale change. Uh, it takes great courage to, to be able to identify, like if you're managing 50,000 people between you and I, there's probably 10,000 people's jobs that could be completely reinvented. But it's, it's really exceptionally rare when you have a leader who's willing and able to kind of take that on uh, at scale on the front end. So I, I think it's going to creep up on a lot of firms, but um, if you embrace it, I think it can create a more human experience, ironically. Uh, and that's what I want. I don't want to, I, I don't have a great experience interacting with some of these crude chat box things. Like I'm the guy that's like, get me on the phone with a human, right? I don't like these automated phone systems where it's like hit one for this, hit two for that. And I'm the guy hitting zero, like 30 times, get me a human being, you know? <laughs> oh, I'm same boat. And you know, it's funny, um, people often ask how ARI got its name, Applied Real Intelligence. And this, this, you know, started about five years ago when I was, when I was thinking about the company that I wanted to build. And at that time, 
you know, AI was, was certainly used. And, I, and my view was that what's happening today was inevitable. And, and so I, I knew this was coming, right? This was, it was inevitable. And my view is that back then you would essentially have to say what was AI driven because there was only, you know, three to 5%, let's say of interactions were AI driven and, and people didn't necessarily know this, but you know, news outlets like Bloomberg, for instance, um, as early as 2016, I was meeting with senior people at Bloomberg and they let me know that approximately 10% of the articles were generated by machine. And I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. Um, what are you guys doing in the bond markets around? Uh -huh, uh -huh. It, was all, it was all for stocks. And they actually, you know, they were like nothing yet. We're, we're just, it's all for the, you know, equity, um, equity products. And I thought, wow. And so I went back to my firm and I actually built my own and I generated a newsletter that I sent out every day that was, it was probably 80 or 90% automated. And I'd basically suck in data via API on Bloomberg and I built an algorithm and, 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 um, basically the text would be generated based on the numbers. And so people were reading this every day and it was one of the most read newsletters in the, in the markets by professional traders. And they're like, how do you do this? Like, how do you get this out? <laughs> At like set six thirty seven in the morning, do you start at three a.m. because it was like ten pages, <laughs> and they didn't even know that. Like, I, this is the first time I've told this to anybody publicly. Like, they little did they know that eighty percent of that was was auto generated, right? And so, so to go back to how AI got its name, my thinking was that back then you'd have to say, okay, this is AI generated, right? Like when you'd call it Bank of America. And you you know get the prompts that don't work. And you're like, okay, this is you know AI now. <laughs> or you'd be in like in a chat conversation, you know, with some you know software company, and it's like not answering your question, right? And and that was clearly not a human, and and it wasn't effective, and it was like pretty much garbage, and it was so frustrating. And I thought, well, fast forward ten years, probably ninety five percent of of everything we do is going to be related to AI in some way, you know, commercially, yeah. and we're going to we're going to have to differentiate what's not AI and we're going to have to say, oh, this is, this is, this is a human you're talking to. This is applied real intelligence. This is not AI. And that was really the, the how this you know, name was born. It was the fact that I knew this was coming and I wanted to differentiate and say, okay, there's going to be, there's going to need to be a term that, that people use to differentiate what's not AI. And, and also add to that. Man, I hadn't thought of that distinction, but that's a neat, uh, that's a that's a that's a really great point because um, you're right. It's 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 going to become the dominant uh, majority, and then it's, you know you're, we're going to be wanting to know well where, where's the real intelligence. Hey, one thing just to add real quick on the automation front, um, you know the other thing that I think is going to uh, temporarily slow it down before it then goes light speed in, in its acceleration is when we first started uh, when I first started getting into automation. Um, I ran into an initial brick wall that I wasn't expecting. And that brick wall was if, you know, if you have automation in theory, it helps you scale and go quicker. That's assuming that you have a very defined process. And if you would have asked me prior to beginning that kind of internal experiment, do you have a process? I would have been like, yes, I absolutely do. But it was only when I came, when I had to program things in black and white rules that I realized, well, hmm. Uh, in this scenario, uh, we don't actually have that defined. In that instance, yeah, boom, we haven't actually defined that. It was a very humbling process, very healthy, very thought-provoking, very strengthening. But um, 
I, I think it will expose a lot of companies, um, parts of companies process that are just not defined at all yet. Cause that without that being clearly defined, you, you have nothing to automate. Right. Um, and it, it was very humbling to realize how much we thought we had a, a, a real process, but didn't really actually have it completely defined. If that makes sense. A hundred percent. And you know, I'm incredibly process driven and going through exercises like automating a newsletter you know, seven years ago, you know, taught me that. And, and I'm not a coder by any means. I just taught myself and, um, and that's how we think about investing too. It's there's an art to it, but there's also science and really you need to combine both. And on the quantitative side, you know, you should be very, very process driven. And then of course there's going to be a lot of judgment calls you have to make. But if you can yeah. take the quantitative side and automate a lot of that and be very, very process-based and, and rule-based and consistent, that then you know, is very additive to you know, the qualitative judgments you're going to make. It, it essentially you know, takes a lot off your plate and can allow you to think about the most important things that, that are not necessarily black and white, but that are always some shade of gray. Well, it also forces you to confront important choices that otherwise can get swept away in the sea of time because we get so busy that things can just escape us. And so the other benefit of rules like that on the investment side is it forces you, hey, price violated this or this you know, boundary got broken, forces us to then have a conversation and deal with that in a really healthy way. Um, and, 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 and that's something I think that, again, I is a plus of automation, a plus of, of what computers can do is they're on emotion. They will tell you when that condition is met. So this leads nicely into my next question, which is what are the key investment principles that you live by? And, and you maybe loop that into you know, how you think about process-based investing to some extent. You know, uh, so I, I, I wrote a couple down here and, um, I'm going to share them with you. I'm not going to actually kind of, I mean, Many of them, I think, are 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 ones you probably share or have heard of. But um, just in the spirit of of sharing, um, there's some big lessons that I've learned over time, um, and and ones they don't always teach you at at Wharton or in the CFA program. So first, I'd say, you know, it's better to be rich than right, uh, at least in the world of investing. You know, um, uh, I think investing. One of the things that I really admire about investing is um, it promotes humility. Um, and, and if, if you don't embrace humility, um, and get over being right or wrong, then, uh, it can be a very expensive, uh, profession. <laughs> um, two, I would say, and this also kind of confronts my traditional fundamental education. Price is the ultimate yardstick, you know, for, for, for most of us, if you're Buffett and you have a, you know, 50 year time horizon, then, then, you know, that, uh, that may not apply to you as much, um, but you know, price is truth. Um, and, uh, I struggled to kind of accept and understand that until I started trading futures where risk management becomes, you know, the difference between life and death. And, you know, it, the, the, what, what I learned was you got to first pay attention to price and take action based on what's going on. You can then get intellectual and analyze and study and understand and all that later, as long as you're still alive. But, but staying alive, you, you know, it's almost like speed in a car, right? If you're going around a corner, you, you know, there's just certain boundaries that you need to, to learn to, to observe and pay attention to. 
um, and how you manage risk. Third one kind of related to that would be cut your losers fast and let your winners run. And we, we say that in the financial sector, but I hear CEOs say that about how to manage employees on teams all the time, right? If you ask, you know, a CEO of a fortune 500 company or even a smaller company, uh, offline, what some of their biggest lessons learned, many of them will tell you, Hey, you know what? Uh, it's uh, when you realize somebody's not the right fit on a team, taking action fast. You know, there's so many stories that you hear from seasoned CEOs about how they just tried to help, took forever, and it just caused all these other issues. I think the, you know, that's um, something we've got to practice in the uh, financial space as well. Um, I, you know, another thing I would say is observe before judging, which I think would be a great lesson for modern American adults in, in culture today in 2023. Observe before judging, and that goes back to price, right? Uh, there, I, I think it was, um, uh, uh, I'm forgetting his name, oh, Charlie Munger, right? So Warren, Warren Buffett's partner who talked about scotoma, the, the fact that neurologically we look for evidence to support our views. And so I think, you know, one of the other disciplines of investing is learning to, um, as best we can as humans, try to discard our biases and really try to see what is there. And, and sometimes what's helpful for that is to look for evidence contrary to your view. So for example, in my inbox, if I'm just getting flooded with articles and some of those articles are about a position that we own, I will often ignore the good articles and I will read the ones talking about how you know, that particular security is bad or going to fall or got a sell rating or something with it. I will read those first um, as just a discipline to make sure that I'm um, not getting caught in my own uh, biases. Another uh, one that I think we can credit uh, Warren Buffett for, um, I don't know if he actually said this or it's just street lore, but be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. Um, I I've seen opportunities time and time again, some of which I've taken advantage of. Uh, others I look back on, I'm like, damn it, I really should have, you know, like, you know, listened to my gut and uh, taken advantage of that that market extremity, whatever that may have been. Um, you know, easier said than done, but there's great value um, when you can remember that at, at, at points of extremity. In old sailor lore, we always used to say, it's always darkest before dawn. Um, and, uh, and I think that's true in the markets. Another one would be, uh, and this goes back to our kind of AI discussion, but create a plan and then work it. You know, it helps manage the emotion. Uh, we're not going to be perfect. Um, and, and there are things that are going to require human input. Um, but I think a good plan gives us the discipline to make sure that we're asking the right questions at the right time and having those tough, tough conversations. Um, Another one that that is just so simple, but so true, and many of us who've traded futures have, have learned the hard way before really understanding its wisdom, uh, is don't fight the trend, right? The trend is your friend. And that again goes back to, it's better to be rich than right. You know, we get a point of view, we're like, oh, you know, dollar yen should be falling or it should be going up and starts going the opposite direction. You start increasing your positions. And why? Because you're convicted in your point of view rather than paying attention to what's actually happening in the world. Um, 
and and end up getting on the wrong side of trend, which can be very very dangerous. Wow. Uh, yeah, you know, another so- one that I uh, one other one here inspired by my grandfather. My grandfather was born in 1899, grew up in the Great Depression, and he never bought anything on credit. I wish I could say the same. Uh, you know, he bought everything all cash. Very very conservative. Um, uh, you know, I think they kept every nail and screw and piece of wire, you know, jars in their, in their basement till, till the day they died. But, um, you know, leverage can be very positive when used judicially and leverage can, can work against you very quickly, uh, if you're not careful. So I, I think leverage, uh, you just need to be extra thoughtful when it comes to leverage. I see in real estate all the time, I'll see people go, oh, here's a great deal. It makes 9%. Uh, no, it's actually, you know, a two and a half cap rate levered to the chin. Uh, you know, I'd rather have a, a, a you know, a 6% return unleveraged. Um, you know, I can always add leverage later. So kind of looking at things pre-leverage and then understanding when it's super advantageous to add it uh, and when you want to, you know, maybe take a pass on it. And then the very last thing I'd say, just kind of, you know, uh, we're human, right? And there's always, you know, this this inner fear of missing out, FOMO. We even have our own name, right? And finance for it. Um, you know, I think that's another emotion that that as a professional investor, we need to really guard against. And I think right now is a great example of that. You know, the the market's gone up a bunch, really on the back of seven stocks. A lot of people did not participate in that um, and had bad years last year. So there's a sense of like. Oh my gosh! How do I make up for it, right? And and that can lead to really um, bad decisions. So you know, I think it's just important for investors to recognize when you're feeling that, just acknowledge that, and put it to the side, and and go back to to kind of your plan. So I, those are some ones that that for me um, are are some really profoundly powerful lessons that that I've learned from others and. Some I've learned the hard way and, um, you know, continue to be important to, to, to our thought process today. Those are such good points. And there, there's so much I want to dig into there. We could probably talk about it all day, but you, you nailed it. I mean, those are, those are just all, all great points. And, um, the idea of FOMO I'll touch on to speak because it, it kind of answers a question I was going to ask you, which is one of the, one of the biggest mistakes. Uh, or what are the biggest mistakes is the, is the question. And in my view is that FOMO and getting in at the wrong time and chasing, chasing the shiny object, chasing that, you know, the hot trade, it just blows people up, you know, and, and they do it again and again and again. It's like, why do people not figure this out? Now, I'll, I'll give you a quick, quick little anecdote that I think, uh, I don't know, I, I find it amusing, but let's see what other <laughs> So when I was a kid, I used to collect baseball cards and, and other sports cards, basketball, football, and a huge collection. It was it, it was my thing, right? And when I was when I was young, there was this, this magazine called Beckett's, which would give you the price of all the cards. And so it would come out you know, once a month. And I was you know ten years old, and I'd go read it, and it, it would show you the price versus the previous month, and it would have a little arrow if it went up or down. And so what I what I would see is that there would you know, be the hot, you know, the hot players and the hot cards would have the little up arrow. And I soon realized 
oh, this is not an indication of where the price is going to go. This is where it already went. And so I started as a third grader realizing that you shouldn't buy things that have already appreciated in value. You need to look for the cards to buy before they have the up arrow next to them. And I figured this out at third grade, you know, it would, and it was pretty obvious to a third grader, you know, how this works. And yet the market, including institutional investors, still hasn't figured this out. They're basically after the up arrow has been printed in the magazine for six months. And they're like, oh, well, now I want in. And whenever I had to read, read you know, prognosticators saying that people should buy into the market now because it's done really well, I, I want to call up their boss and say, can you just like shut this person up and fire them? Because, <laughs> I mean, it, it, this is complete nonsense. And, and yet the market has really you know, bought into this and thinking a lot. And I think you know, this is, I, I, I do want to get into this because it's been something that's been bothering me is the quality of investing out there has plummeted in recent years. Uh, absolutely you know, gone down the tubes. Um, you know, you've got like meme stocks, you've got like, you know, assets that aren't, that aren't even real. And people think, you know, think they're investors because they can speculate on their Robinhood app. And it, it and you know, it bothers me because real investors have spent decades going to school, you know, working at the top firms, you know, working 60, 70, 80 hours a week to get better every single day. And we're true experts in our field. And then somebody comes along and because they've got a LinkedIn account and they can spew their opinion, all of a sudden they, you know, they think they're an expert and, and somehow others do as well. And, and to me, it, 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 the investment industry is at risk right now. And one stat I'll, I'll share that I think is very interesting. You know, we're both CFA charter holders. Um, CFA is kind of like the gold standard in the industry. And, you know, there's many, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of charter holders worldwide. I think there's, you know, almost 200,000 now. Now, what's interesting to me is that the number of people registering for CFA exams has plummeted in the last three years, um, and it coincides with this boom in in you know crappy assets and, and boom in liquidity, and uh, it's it's gone down immensely. So the three year average uh, number of enrollments for the CFA tests from 2017 to 2019 was a little bit under 250 thousand annually. Right, so mm. COVID, about two hundred fifty thousand people registering every year. Last year, two thousand twenty-two, it was down to less than one hundred and fifty thousand. It dropped like two mm. percent. Right, and the year before that, in in two thousand twenty-one, because of COVID, only fifty thousand people took the exam. So you would expect that the number would have went up in two thousand twenty-two because of the pent-up demand from twenty-one. Right, instead, it went down, and this year the year-over-year run rates lower than 2022. So what we're seeing is a massive decline in the number of people that are trying to participate in the CFA exams and earn the charter. And, and it's interesting to me because I think there's certainly a correlation there between the easy money that's been made and the amount of work that people want to put in to actually become skilled investors. And who wants to put in you know, 1,200 hours studying for the CFA and probably not pass every level in the first attempts when they can just go buy, you know, cryptocurrency or a meme stock or, you know, an AI speculative stock. And all of a sudden, you know, they've made, you know, five X their money. And, and, and I there's markets. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the markets got basically help people develop very, very bad habits. And I think we need a, a cleansing to wipe out those bad habits. And that's why I'm kind of rooting for, you know, a reset. Hey, you mentioned a couple of interesting things that I want to want to hit on. Um, 
So on the emotional side, I think one of the other key mistakes that investors make um, is they look backwards instead of looking forwards, right? This is one of the most fundamental mistakes that we saw happen at Silicon Valley Bank, for example. I mean, for 20 years, 25 years, owning bonds was an incredibly great trade, right? And, and then the Fed decides to start raising interest rates. They did not do that suddenly. They were on the top of a mountaintop shouting, we're going to raise rates, we're going to raise rates. And, um, and it's amazing to me how many people, portfolios, strategies, models, all have a huge amount of bonds in them, traditional bonds, for no other reason than that's what we did yesterday. And um, and I think that that really hurts people. I think you've got to be forward looking, not backward looking. And and to your point, in other areas of life, people are pretty good at this. They get that right. So like, if you're out driving today and it looks like the sky is just going to start pouring, that's what's going to matter to you, not the fact that yesterday it was bright and sunny. You're going to be forward looking in terms of thinking about. If there's super cold weather projected the next week in the city you're traveling to, you're going to bring warm clothes because you're looking forwards, not backwards. Because last week you were in Maui on a beach and it was 80 degrees and wearing, you know, a bathing suit. Um, but yet in the investment space, it stuns me how much of the herd is still focused on yesterday. Yeah, and this touches on the, the point you made earlier about resistance to change. I think the investment management industry historically has done well because they didn't change and they were kind of always that like steady rock that never did anything differently. But in in the current world, things are changing so quickly. And so folks that don't adapt are going to you know, get eliminated. It's going to be Darwinian, in my opinion. I think there's going to be a huge culling of of all the folks that are, are resistant to change. You I work the change because they'll go out of business. And I think we're going to see a big wave of that over the next five to 10 years when a lot of mediocrity is wiped out and, and folks that aren't skating to where the puck is going, as Wayne Gretzky would say, are, they're just not going to have a seat at the table anymore. And, and banks, I think, are going to be at the center of that. And I want to, there's a few things on that I want to share. But, but one other thing I want to add uh, on the topic of human capital. Um, I had a, breakfast, I don't know, it's probably 15 years ago, I was invited to a relatively small uh, breakfast um, hosted by Michael Milk. And at the time, it was again, kind of one of these periods where we had twin deficits and everybody was freaking out, is it sky falling? Is America going down the tubes, you know? And, um, and, and nobody had asked him about that yet, so I did. And his answer was really instructive to me, very insightful, very deep and um, inspires me to this day. He said, I don't worry about the financial deficit. He said, I worry about the human capital deficit, right? If you look at the history of the country, we, you know, some of the great things we did were powered by extraordinary intellects that we recruited to America that made America home. Um, immigration had a large part to do with that. We want to make sure we are, you know, in a healthy way, inviting, the, you know, the right people to make this home. And um, when I think about, um, you know, some of what we're seeing in the in the marketplace today, 
Um, I think there's a lot of thought being given to the financial capital side of the equation, but not enough being given to the to the human capital side of the equation. Um, and so I, I, I think that there, there's going to be a lot of disruption, but an enormous amount of opportunity. And like I said, I think banks are going to be absolutely at the center of that. So much good stuff to talk about here, but we only have a few more minutes. So I want to I want to use this as a segue into talking about alternative investments, because that is where the world is going. Um, and that is in the investment industry, certainly. And I'm curious, why do you think alternative investments are are gaining popularity and why are they very beneficial to have in one's portfolio, generally speaking? You know, I, I think two reasons. Um, one is experiential, the other substantive. Um, from an experiential standpoint, a lot of clients, uh, you know, what they don't like about the stock market is the fact that, you know, multi-billion dollar companies could be up or down 25% a day. And that kind of roller coaster, uh, you know, was was cool when you were a kid in, a, in an amusement park, but it's not cool when that's your, you know, your net worth that that is, you know, uh, experiencing such dramatic fluctuations. Um, and, and in the private markets, uh, alternative markets, um, you know, I, I think that there's, um, in general, the experience is one of less volatility. There's still risk that you got to manage. And I think that's been a, um, a point of attraction. Substantively, my CFA hat on, um, and this does relate to the banking crisis, uh, there are opportunities um, to earn, you know, very healthy rates of return on risk-adjusted basis in the private markets that, um are not available in the public markets. And so from an investment standpoint, um, it, you know, it doesn't make sense to limit yourself to just one half of the menu. And the private markets have, have been steadily expanding over the last 20, 30 years. Um, and, and, and today they are substantial markets. This is no longer a niche playing field. Um, and, and a great simple example would be you know, you've got a lot of investors out there who are saying, hey, look, I want something that's going to be, a, I want to stay ahead of inflation. Um, I want to make, you know, high single digits, low double digits, but I don't want to bet the farm, right? And so a lot of people have tried to accomplish that using leverage and investing in high yield publicly traded securities, but that, man, that, that could be really risky. Um, on the other hand, in the private markets, there are very attractive opportunities to do that on what I would argue is um uh, reduced risk uh, basis that are created by imbalances in supply demand of capital. And, and you know, the banking crisis we're seeing right now is a great example of that. Um, small, medium-sized banks are now incentivized to, to be a lot more conservative because they're worried about the prospect of a bank run. They don't want to end up without a job tomorrow. And uh, as it is, their deposits are, are, are leaving them because people are waking up and saying, hey, I, I'm not okay with the, the national average of 0.4% that you're paying us in our savings account. I should be able to get 4.7% you know, um, without taking much risk, if any at all, in the right kind of money market fund. Um, and so their deposits are leaving, risk level, you know, they're, they're less willing to embrace any risk. And, and so you have a lot of companies out there um, and people out there that need access to capital. And um, in the absence of banks being your lending partner and 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 providing that niche lending opportunities, you know, um, 
have existed and are now, you know, becoming, I think, even more, um, even more dynamic. And, and there's an opportunity to earn, you know, healthy yields that um, if you're organizing that fund the right way, you're not, you're not betting the farm. And, um, and so I think there's some really attractive opportunities there that, you know, going back to your very, very first question, that's one of the things that we're spending a lot of time looking at is where are the best opportunities that are coming from this tremendous, you know, credit um, uh, reduction and in, in willingness to provide credit, not just the interest rate, but just a willingness to, to lend uh, because banks are now kind of under, you know, um, extra scrutiny by the regulators uh, and fearing bank runs and worried about their profitability as, as they should be. So this is a great tie-in to venture debt, which is what ARI does in the sense that, well, first I want to go back to tying it in with Milken. So Milken became you know, famous and, and rich because he basically popularized loans to non-investment grade companies, right? So back in the early 80s, a lot of folks said, why would you ever lend money to a company that wasn't investment grade? That's junk. And so it was known as the junk bond market. And what the reality was is that there was this huge percentage of the universe that needed this capital and they weren't being efficiently served by that ecosystem, by the banks at that time. And so Mike Milken and Howard Marks and some others basically said, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to help these non-investment graded borrowers access the capital markets more efficiently. And it was called junk bonds back then. Now it's called high yield and almost everybody has it in their portfolio. And that's ultimately the opportunity that I saw and continue to see in venture debt. There's this need for capital from startups that are growing very fast. They've got revenue and they don't want to you know, sell more equity necessarily, but they need growth capital. And so they'd like to borrow some money to help them grow because it's cheaper and less dilutive than equity capital. And so there's this huge growing pool of innovative companies. Like think about all the startups in this world that are coming to market that are going to need capital. And there's two ways to fund them. Equity, the VC model, or debt, the venture debt model. Now on the venture debt side, it's very um, you know, underserved and there's very few players in the space. And that brings us to the next point that you just made, which is banks are pulling back on lending and providing less credit. And I think that's going to continue, which has created this huge market opportunity for non-bank lenders. But uh, you, have, you have a question or a thought? Yeah, it's all it's all kind of uh, all kind of markets. So there's the venture debt, you know, market is going to need capital. Um, you know, it can also just be saying, like for example, the traditional banking uh, credit model is really based on this idea of a credit score, right? Um, okay, if you have a a perfect credit score, then we'll give you capital. Um, you know, the next level down is cash flow. So if you have really great cash flow, but you have a terrible credit score, you know, think uh, a wealthy doctor that is, or dentist that's in the middle of a divorce and there've been intentional, you know, uh, the complications between credit cards haven't been paid and all these things as part of that process. But the guy's making bank cash flow is strong, but it's from a traditional credit standpoint, his credit might be terrible, right? So a lot of the traditional banks look at that and be like, ooh, we don't want to touch it. So that, that introduces, you know, cash flow-based lending, um, which, you know, um, some banks do that, but a lot of them don't. And uh, surprisingly, and then the third level down is collateral 
based lending. So, okay, you don't have cash flow, but you've got collateral. Um, and, and so I, I think there's a, a, a rich opportunity based on different types of lending models. Banks are pulling back in all three. There's also speed, right? So banks are traditionally incredibly painfully slow to work with. Uh, Michael Milken, for example, innovated the allocation of capital, not just in the financial markets, um, but he also in the in the you know in the in the medical research space. I, I don't know if you know he he wrote an amazingly inspiring book about that, where you know traditionally if you were a young upstart researcher in the medical space, you know the applications for grants would all ask you to cite what books you've written, what articles have been published. Um, like, hey, I don't have any gray hair. I'm 25 years old. I just graduated with a PhD. I've got some really great ideas. I need some money to test them in the labs. I don't have 15 citations. And, uh, you know, even if they did consider your ideas, the turnaround time would often be a year. Milken came in and said, hey, uh, we don't care about the gray hair. We care about the quality of ideas and we'll fund you in a week. Can you imagine that being a 25 year old researcher and being like, yo, 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 what? <laughs> uh, and, and so the, you know, speed and the qualification process, I mean, he had experts evaluating the merit of the ideas. Um, and in a portfolio of ideas, there may always be a couple that don't perform, which is why you always want to put a fund together so that you're diversified across those credits. So that invariably when some of those don't go according to plan A, you're still okay at the portfolio level uh, and doing well. Um, but I, yeah, I think there's a, a lot of, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that'll be happy to pay a higher premium for the convenience of, you know, a faster decision process. It's the certainty of getting an answer, yes or no, rather than kind of this long drawn out process. Um, the banks that can be agile and give that quickly, I think will continue to thrive. But I think many banks, uh, a lot of the banking sector, um, that's just not their forte and uh, creates unique openings for firms like yours and, and other specialty lenders to, to take advantage of and opportunities for us to deploy client capital um, in, in ways that, that are far more profitable, I think, now with that imbalance and with higher interest rates than they have been for years. That's great insights. And, and I think you know, a lot of people are still figuring this out, you know, and it'll take them a, a while. So you're you know, well ahead of the curve, I think, in terms of how you're thinking. Absolutely. Well, backwards looking versus forward looking, right? I mean, it's easier for a lot of people to just buy a, oh, we'll buy a 20 year US, you know, uh, government bond ETF. Well, that was down 32% last year, right? You know, bonds are all, bonds are safe. We heard that for decades, but 20 year bond ETFs down 32% last year, uh, not safe. So, so uh, to add to that stat, uh, if, if someone was invested in um, an average performing venture debt fund last year, they would have been up close to uh, 20% versus being down 32% in the government bond. So think about that. They would have picked up 52%, which is basically a decade of fixed income returns in one year. So all the people that have been waiting, you know, hey, I don't want to get into venture debt. I, you know, I don't want to get into private credit. I just want to like, you know, own these treasuries because they're quote low risk, didn't really contemplate interest rate risk and didn't really know what they were doing. And, you know, now they're you know, going to be you know, behind the curve for the next decade. And just to get back to break even, it's going to take them 10 years because they missed yeah. it. And I think this is going to get even more accentuated by the real estate problems that are on banks' balance sheets, not to mention they're long, a bunch of long bonds as well. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, I, I don't think real estate's out of the woods yet. Um, you know, I think residential is probably better positioned because, you know, home is the new office. Um, and, and, and even today, three years after COVID, the physical occupancy of our downtown office buildings in the top 10 U.S. metro areas hovers at slightly below 50%. Um, you know, but other, uh, you know, office buildings, oh my gosh, right? I mean, malls are, are going under, uh, retail. Here's interesting. Only 25% of our retail business is done online today. In my house, it feels like a hundred because, of, you know, Amazon, uh, my, my wife is like, she, you know, if they gave out like designations, she'd be like an Amazon ninja, you know I mean? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's amazing what you get online now. Um, and, and, but, but just 25%. So that 25 means the logistics and the office, you know, the warehouse logistics behind that is 25 going to go to a hundred. Probably not, but is it going to go from 25 to 50 to 75? I would absolutely argue that it's, it's headed that direction. So, you know, there will be niche areas that, that continue to do well, but, um, I think a lot of people are going to lose money in real estate. Um, I mean, you know, they, they've been raised on this idea that real estate always goes up and they got raised in an environment where interest rates were, you know, inexpensive and, and near free um, for a number of years. Um, I mean, it, it, after tax cost of debt is two or three percent. I mean, it's just, you know, and so you get a lot of people that were just buying stuff, leveraging it up and going, hey, it's always going to go up. I'm going to make a lot of money. And it did. Backward looking, forward looking, going forward. Um, you know, interest rates are much higher. Um, behaviors have changed and you, you got to be smart about it. So, um, you know, I think banks that that's going to, uh, also saddle banks and, um, that's going to create, you know, again, more, uh, more opportunities in the middle. Yeah. You, you hit on an interesting point about the, the growth of, uh, the market potential going from 25% online and it could easily be more than that. And that's what I think a lot about in terms of innovation finance in the sense that only about 1% of total capital in the startup ecosystem is debt. So if you were just, yeah, yeah. So if you were to go from one to 2%, which is not a 2% is not a big number. You literally double the size of venture debt in the ecosystem. And and that's why I think this market's poised for huge growth, because if you look at the public markets, S&P 500 companies, for instance, 30% of their capital structure, a little bit more than 30% actually is debt, right? And so obviously startups are never going to have as much debt as a mature company, but I don't think that, you know, the difference yeah. percent versus 30%. So in my mind that, that, that 1%, you know, five to 10 years from now could easily be, you know, 5%, which means you've got 500% market growth. And that's why I see this venture debt market exploding in growth, just like, you know, high yield did or junk bonds back in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. And you may, uh, you may have the actual statistics on this. I don't remember off the top of my head, but when I was looking at the Silicon Valley bank debacle, um, although I was incredibly, um, shocked at the fact that nobody on their board or senior management seemed to be, um, managing even the most basics of, of, of balance sheet risk. Uh, with respect to the, you know, the their fixed income holdings, I, I do have to give them credit. When you look at their venture debt portfolios, um, you know, the the credit losses were very very low. 
Um, they did a they did an ex- at least from what I saw, uh, seemed to do an exceptionally good job um, in that in that side of the business. Yeah, you know it's a it's it's a shame that they didn't know how to manage the rate risk in their you know, treasury portfolio and mortgage backed portfolio. But yeah, the jewel in their crown has always been you know, the venture lending, and you know I always use that as a as a great comp when I'm talking to people about venture debt. I say, look, we can look at Silicon Valley Bank's numbers, and there's other you know public companies that that specialize in venture debt, and the numbers are out there. And you know, 2009, worst year in in you know history essentially for um, financial asset performance, at least in our history, right in our lifetime. <laughs> Silicon Valley Bank only had to write off 2.6 percent of their loan book 2.6 wow. that means 97.4 percent of their loans were all performing and generating interest you know and then therefore they didn't even lose money in 2009 and i think their venture loans actually perform better than their you know, non-venture loans because venture loans are backed by the top vcs in the country right and so there's there's implicitly huge support and a lot of money behind these companies and so it's not the same as lending to a traditional small business. You're not lending to a restaurant or a hairdresser or a lawn, you know, lawn care company. You're you're lending to one of the fastest growing tech companies in the world. It's backed by big VCs. You know, there's a lot of, of money that's gone into it, a lot of reputational risk, right? And there's there's a massive amount of skin in the game that's subordinate to you when you're the senior lender. Like you basically control the cap structure as a senior lender, and everybody else has put in money is subordinate to you and you're going to get paid off first in it in it yeah so that's another example of where i think uh there are niche lending sectors where there's something about it the exterior that scares people um and this being one of them that if you structure it right on the inside you're doing a lot to reduce risk um and and it might be significantly more on a risk adjusted basis attractive than people really realize another example of that would be like uh you know we've invested in uh dip financing strategies. Uh, you know, it's a, a lot of people, they'd be like, why in the world would you ever lend to a company that's in bankruptcy? You know, I mean, on the surface of it, that sounds crazy and risky. <clears throat> but, um, you know, of course, if you dig into it and you see that you have no collateral risk because it's, you know, there's total, clear, absolute title, thanks to the, you know, power of the judge in that context, um, highly supervised process, Usury light rates don't apply, and you're over collateralized. Suddenly, you start to think, "Ooh, that's that's pretty interesting." Uh, and also, the only place on earth, by the way, where you get paid before the IRS. I didn't know that uh, until we started doing due diligence on that. Um, but if the company owes money to the IRS, they don't get paid until that dip financing does first. So it, again, you know, to the outside world, it might seem like a really crazy, scary thing. But when you get on the inside and you look at all the different precautions and things that are done to manage that risk. Um, and you start going, man, this is a lot better than some of those super volatile, you know, high yield funds on the stock market. Um, so I, that, I think that arbit, arbitrage of kind of emotional perception of, of what it feels like to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing versus being on the inside. Well, a lot of people don't realize this, but you know, the history of value investing, if you look at like, you know, Ben Graham and you know, who Warren Buffett, you know, learned from and, and and really understand how it all began, they would invest in companies that they called cigar butt companies. Basically, you have <laughs> a cigar butt on the street, but there's still like a little bit left to smoke and you're picking it up for you know, for free, essentially. 
and there's value there to, you know, very similar analogy to like a dip financing, right? Where, yeah, the company might be going down, but there's still value. And if you can extract that value and you pay the right price for it, you can be a big winner. And I think a lot of people don't understand that they, they, they get, you know, they get these concepts of price and value confused. So I would, I would uh, tell people to go read up on Howard Marks and his views on, on price and value. And, um, he has some great quotes on that, doesn't he? I mean, yeah. uh, what a great mind. Yeah. Brilliant. And uh, kind of random thought here, but I think both Howard Marks and Mike Milken are also working grads, um, under, well, yeah, I, uh, uh, uh-huh. I, I, uh, uh, I, that's right. Yeah. But Marks went to uh Chicago booth or the GSB when he went there for business school. So, so, uh, yeah, I always like him for that as well. A funny, a uh, funny story about Milken. I, uh, I was friends with his son, Greg, uh, we were in Japanese class together and he had a big birthday party and invited a bunch of people, uh, rented out a boat and on the second floor of this boat, they were like a casino and, uh, uh, and Michael would walk around and, uh, he, he would help like, you know, he, he was mathematically super, one of the smartest guys of it. I mean, holistically smart, you know, um, really out there making a difference in the world, but also just ridiculously sharp and smart. And, uh, so we'd be at the craps table or whatever table. And, uh, he would always, uh, it, it was pretty funny cause he'd have some guys who kind of thought they knew what they were doing and, you know, kind of chest out trying to impress the, the girls or whatever. And he'd walk up and he'd, He'd kind of coach, you know, uh, whoever was the underdog at the table. And, and, uh, you know, you're like, oh, <laughs> I, I want him on my team, you know? Uh, but such, such an amazing guy. It's, you're right. I mean, seeing that disconnect of capital back in the day and to your point about value, I mean, you know, with his miter light on on the bus reading financials, he wasn't speculating. He wasn't saying, I think this company might be successful in the future. He was saying, if you look at the numbers, it's got the cash flow to support it. It's got the assets to support it. It's just not the, you know, it's just that the big sources of capital, they're not serving these companies right now. Um, and I will. And, and in the process, he invented a whole, you know, genre of, of, of financing. And, and I think did a lot of good for America because a lot of those companies, um, grew and created a lot of jobs that uh, wouldn't have happened without that that funding. I, I'm actually part of the the Milken Institute Young Leaders Circle and go to the Milken conference every year. And I agree with you. I mean, the stuff that they're doing is just incredible. Um, I, didn't, I, I didn't know that, actually. What a, what a small world. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and you know, I'm in I'm in Santa Monica. Round and quarter from sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's great, but it's um, it's amazing the impact they're they're having. It's um, it's special to be part of it in, in many ways, and it's going to keep growing. I mean, some of the things that they're doing now that I was looking at at the conference this year, uh, it's kind of mind boggling. So, um, yeah, we're out of time. Unfortunately, I feel like we could talk all day. This has been uh, fantastic. I've loved it. I've learned a lot, and I wanted to um, ask you, what's the best way for folks to to reach out to you to learn about you? Is there, um, is it LinkedIn? Is it a website? What's best? Yeah, it could be, could be LinkedIn, uh, or you can look us up, uh, online at whitwelladvisors.com uh, and, um, you know, open, always open to having open conversations and 
getting to know new people. So don't don't be shy. Reach out. And again, thank you for for setting this up. I've really enjoyed our conversation and feel like we could uh, extend it for another twelve hours. Yeah, we will offline. So everybody else will will miss that. But um, maybe we'll we'll do another one later to uh, talk about all the advances that are happening now. Right. I mean, there's so much going on that we're going to have to talk about. You know, six months, twelve months from now. So we'll get you back. Exciting, exciting times right now. Well, thanks again for coming, and thanks everybody for listening to the Seven and Seven Show with Zach Ellison. See you next time.